Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Happy New Year from the DSR Network. We hope you had a safe and happy holiday season. We're excited about our plans for 2022, which will include more member content, exciting partnerships, and programming expansion. To celebrate what we hope to be a successful 2022, we are offering $2 off a monthly membership or $20 off an annual membership. Members receive access to bonus content, member-only briefings delivered on Wednesdays and Fridays, access to our member Slack community, an ad-free listening experience, and more. To become a member, which goes a long way to supporting our work, please visit bit.ly slash dsrmember and use code DSR2022 at checkout. That's bit.ly slash DSR member and use code DSR2022 at checkout. Thank you. Nine, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio. Coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to the latest edition of Deep State Radio. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, and at this moment, I'm coming to you from our nation's capital. I'll give you a little bit of an update on what I'm finding here in one second, but first, I'd like to welcome... Our panels, including somewhere on the West Coast, Corey Shockey of the American Enterprise Institute. How are you doing, Corey? I am doing exceedingly well. Thank you, David. Excellent. And somewhere on the East Coast, on the Southern part, we have with us Rosa Brooks. How are you doing, Rosa? I'm very well. Thank you, David. And a little further north, I think we have with us Washington Post columnist and our friend Max Boot. How are you, Max? I'm good, thank you. So guys, you know, for the past few weeks here on this podcast, every so often we'll talk about Russia and Ukraine. And, um, you know, I found it a little unnerving that Corey uh, would say things like, well, you know, I think they may do this. And I have to say, Corey, compared to the people in the government I'm talking to in Washington, you are Little Mary Sunshine. Um, <laughs> no, oh no. Okay. The White House today made a statement that Russia could begin its invasion at any moment, which of course has set CNN and others up in a tizzy. Other people I've spoken to have said, oh, this is definitely going to happen. And the scenarios that I've heard are not just bad because they imply Russia is going to invade Ukraine, but people worried about escalation. And I should have invited our friend Evelyn Farkas here, where she's out there apparently championing the idea that we put together an alliance to actually go and fight the Russians in Ukraine, uh, which seems not to be the mainstream view to me, but, you know, gives you a sense that that view is out there. But there are other sort of secondary implications. Most people don't know, for example, that Russia is the, I think, our leading source of imported oil 
although we're not dependent on imported oil, were there sanctions that cut things like that off, the price of oil would go up. And if the price of oil went up in an inflationary environment like this one, uh, inflation would go up. And the political consequences of that in the United States could be devastating for the president, as could the consequences of only being able to levy sanctions against Putin, who doesn't really seem to care about that. On that cheery note, let me start by going around the group and getting your perspectives on where we are. And if you'll forgive me, Corey and Rosa, let me start with Max, who's our guest today. As your interlocutors in, in Washington suggest, David, the outlook is, is not good, to put it mildly. I mean, I was initially skeptical that Putin would actually go to war. I thought this might be a repeat of the war scare that he pulled off about a year ago and then back down. But I'm increasingly pessimistic about the prospects of deterring a Russian invasion because he really is giving every appearance that he plans to do it. Or, and of course, not you know say Russian invasion is a little bit of a misnomer because Russia already invaded Ukraine in 2014. What we're really talking about is an expanded Russian invasion. And then the question mark becomes how expansive and, and with what aims, if in fact he, he decides to go forward. I'm still skeptical that Putin is actually going to try to invade and occupy the whole country. It's a, I mean, it's a country of 43 million people. That would be a pretty big bite for the bear to swallow. And I think Putin is very cognizant of the fact that he would face the prospect of a debilitating long-term guerrilla warfare that we could aid in a bed, just as we did with the Afghan Mujahideen in the 1980s. So I don't think he's going to try to swallow the whole country, but I do think that there is a, a very good chance that he will attack the Ukrainian forces in the east, which are arrayed against Russian-backed separatists. He could mount certainly a devastating blitzkrieg-type offensive, using especially Russian superiority in air and missile power to inflict heavy losses on the Ukrainians. He could certainly, Russia has a lot of tanks and, 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 and armored vehicles and so forth ready to go on multiple axes. They, can, they would have the advantage of invading Ukraine from multiple directions and potentially pull off a pincer move against the Ukrainian army and, and with the potential to inflict pretty heavy losses. And then I would expect at that point, based on what Russia did in Georgia in 2008, they would probably pull back at that point so as to avoid guerrilla warfare, but to leave Ukraine in a, in a much weaker position, possibly to occupy a land corridor between Crimea and the Russian-controlled part of eastern Ukraine. So I think that's, that's the, the most likely scenario. I hope I'm wrong. I mean, I don't think anything is written in stone. It ultimately depends upon the, the judgment of one man, Putin, what he does, and he could always decide to back down. But I'm increasingly pessimistic that that's going to happen. I continue to think Putin will not pull the trigger on this, even though I share Max's view that there's lots dangerous happening and that Vladimir Putin's moving an awful lot of equipment and then subsequently the troops to be able to use it for that purpose. I should say that I have always only been about 55% confident of my judgment on this. And I agree with Max that the shadows are lengthening and the sky is darkening. My AEI colleague, Chris Miller, who's a Russia expert, 
is of the view that the Russians actually have committed so much that they now can't walk away and that he thinks a land bridge to Crimea is imminently possible. My AEI colleague, Fred Kagan, who does a lot of careful work on tactical issues, is of the judgment that Putin has about a month to either move or before Ukraine becomes much more difficult to operate in. So I do think we have a very dicey month ahead of us. I'm really pleased with the Biden administration's diplomacy, though. They are holding the NATO allies together. They are showing that we're not the people creating the crisis. They seem to have a package of potential sanctions that from Vladimir Putin's response, he's actually worried about. And I'm delighted to see that one of the things they're focusing on is transparency and making clear the direct sanction on the Russian head of state since he is the one making these decisions. That's exactly the right move, not to punish an entire country in an authoritarian society, but to target the leadership who are the only people who can legitimately be held responsible at this point. Rosa? I don't know what to say, and I'm in good company, at least, and having no idea what's going to happen. I was reading our friend David Sanger's piece in the New York Times a day or so ago, uh, which seemed to conclude this could happen, that could happen, the other thing could happen, and we have absolutely no idea, which is unfortunately where we are. I mean, as, 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 as David put it, you know, only Vladimir Putin knows what Vladimir Putin is planning at this point, and he may not even know what he's planning. I mean, he may very well be calibrating his actions day by day, hour by hour, as he, as he sees our responses. You know, I agree with both Max and Corey. I can't see how it could possibly be in his interest to have a full-scale invasion. You know, it's, it's a hassle. As, we, as the U.S. discovered in Afghanistan and Iraq, it's, a, it's not so easy. And I think he is smart enough to know that. Whether he will use targeted strikes, et cetera, to try to create a land bridge between Crimea and Donetsk, I don't know. Who knows? Maybe. One of the things that, that makes me a little bit more optimistic, maybe than some of the administration folks you've been talking to, David, uh, is my, my understanding is that we actually, some of, our, some of our intelligence analysts and planners expected things to be a lot worse by now, that the, the expectation was that by now, Russia would have moved about 175,000 troops to the border with Ukraine. And in fact, they haven't. They've got a lot. They've got somewhere between about 75,000 and 100,000 troops. And they're now getting you know, Belarusian assistance on, on the other side. But it's the buildup has not been quite as dramatic as it could have been and indeed as, as many analysts feared it could be. What does that mean? I hope it means that this is still more, more bluff than anything else. But, you know, 100,000 troops is still plenty, more than enough to do quite a lot of damage. What does a win here look like for Putin? What does a win here look like for Biden? Max. I mean, I think for Biden, it's pretty obvious that a win is to avoid an expanded Russian invasion of Ukraine in terms of what it looks like for Putin. I think it, it has to be to achieve some objective here, which is why I'm increasingly pessimistic that he's going to be able to back down because he's taken it so far to the brink right now that if he just disperses the troops back to their garrisons, it's going to be widely perceived as a Russian failure in the face of NATO and Ukrainian resistance. I think he has to achieve 
something, and he set his sights very, very high. I mean, his demands are basically to kick NATO out of Eastern Europe, and NATO is not going to do that, but he is going to want something else. And something like a land bridge between Crimea and Donetsk is, is certainly something that is well within Russian military capabilities. I mean, he's not going to get an agreement from NATO to say that we will never invite Ukraine into NATO. We're going to, he's not going to get an agreement to say we're going to pull all of Western military support from Ukraine. That's just not happening. And so whatever he's going to get at this point, he's probably going to have to get by force. And that, that's, that's an unfortunate circumstance. So, Corey, same question, but, but let me build on, on what Max just said. Since only Putin will decide whether Putin goes in or not, and since the administration has done a pretty good job pulling Europe together, and even the German chancellor today said that Nord Stream 2 is on the table, and which he had sort of waffled on that, but now he had said, if the Russians invade, everything will be considered. Wouldn't a potential Biden sort of communication strategy on this thing be to frame this not in those binary terms of whether Russia goes in or not as success or failure, but of whether Russia sustains an invasion as a success or failure, so that when they pull out, which that seems likely they would do at a certain point, one could say that was the success. Well, I don't even think the bar has to be that high, David. I actually don't think it will be a failure for the Biden administration if Russia invades Ukraine. The world's a dangerous place. We don't control everything. I think actually it will be a success for the Biden administration if they hold the NATO allies together, if they keep Germany on side and penalize Russia for whatever. Russia does. If Russia pulls the trigger on this and further invades Ukraine, that will change a whole lot of things about Russia and the world. And it will make much harder any kind of links between Russia and Europe. And so I don't think Biden has to prevent the invasion for it to be a success. Holding the West together in the face of danger is actually good enough to qualify as success for me. For Putin, I agree with Max. Given how visible and how demonstrative Putin's actions have been, I don't even think it can count as a success if what he achieves is the long-term stationing of Russian forces in Belarus, which would have been an interesting and desirable objective from Russia's standpoint before this started. But the, what I can't figure out is Putin made such wildly expansive and unrealistic demands of the NATO allies that it simply served to unify us. There were choices he could have made that would have been much more divisive among the Western allies. And that's what's making my spidey sense worry that he actually intends to do this. That's the 45%. I didn't know that you had spidey sense, but that's a, that's interesting that you had it. Were you, it's my superpower, David. That's interesting. Were you bitten by a spider actually, or? Absolutely. But not like that Australian guy we read about in the BBC. No, thankfully. 
Thankfully not. Rosa, let me make it, as you answer this, a little bit more domestic politics and go back to what I was talking about at the beginning, because somebody presented this to me over breakfast this morning, and it's been a little something I've been thinking about. And that is, if Russia goes in and if it triggers sanctions, and if those sanctions include stopping the sale of Russian oil and natural gas, which they sort of necessarily must. Oil is already, the people are already talking about it hitting 100 again. If it triggers a spike in oil prices that leads to gas prices being substantially higher than they already are in the United States in for the next few months, maybe into the summer, how can that not be devastating for the Democrats? I don't know if it's devastating, but it's certainly not good. I mean, obviously, Biden is already in a, you know, somewhat weakened position and has been for for some time now. He's vulnerable. Uh, his efforts to get voting rights through on the Hill have failed so far. You know, he inflation has been going up, as you said. He doesn't have a huge amount of goodwill even from his own party at this exact moment. So, yeah, that would hurt him. More broadly, though, I'm not sure that the American public cares enough about Ukraine, for better or for worse, to penalize Biden on the issue of whether he's able to stop some kind of Russian military action in Ukraine. You know, if if he can't, if if Putin does do something, even if it's not a full scale invasion, even if it's just enough to grab a little bit more land, et cetera. You know, certainly the the Republicans will do their best to say this is because Biden was too weak. Um, I doubt it will really work because, frankly, I really don't think that the American public cares that much. Uh, and if anything, I think both on the right and on the left, the American public is is at this moment more strongly in the direction of we're not the world's cop. It's not our job to stop anybody from doing anything anywhere. All we care about is ourselves. You know that that, that this is we don't want to see the U.S. somehow getting sucked more than it already is into this. And indeed, I think since most Americans barely know where Ukraine is anyway, and are not making those connections to rising oil prices and rising gas prices and so on, most Americans are probably scratching their heads already wondering why anybody cares so much about Ukraine. So I, you know, I don't think Biden's in great shape, but he's already not in great shape. Economically, it could hurt him, but I don't think it's going to hurt him that much given where he's starting. You know, in terms of Putin, what's a win for Putin? I think Putin, I, you know, I continue to think Putin is motivated by essentially one thing, which is status. Uh, well, I should have said he's motivated by one thing, which is survival, which necessitates a search for status, which in turn necessitates a search for showing his own constituencies that he's a tough guy and he's working for their interests. I don't think that that pushes him necessarily in the direction of military action, though. I, th I think I think his status is enhanced if he can show that Russia is asserting control, you know, and standing up to the West and so forth. And he's got plenty of other tools at his disposal in addition to direct military action. You know, as, as we know, just in the last few days, we've seen what appear to be Russian sponsored cyber attacks on Ukrainian government servers uh, and Microsoft warned that there is more to come potentially. You know, he's got lots of things he can do that can really mess with the Ukrainians and that everybody will know was the Russians, even though he'll be able to say, wink, wink, oh, I don't know anything about that. I don't think he loses face if, if they don't invade, because I think he, you know, his line all along has been, 
invade, who would ever have thought I would do such a thing? I certainly have no intention of doing that. So I don't think he seems like he's backing down if he doesn't. I think he I think he can keep Russian troops where they are, even if he isn't able to seize any additional chunks of Ukraine. He keeps them right where they are. He keeps messing with Ukrainians through cyber means, through, you know, little green men, through whatever. And he says he smiles, you know, he gives us his sort of Cheshire cat look and, and says, see, I'm a man of peace. You know, even though you bellicose Americans have been making these noises as if I'm some kind of warmonger, as you can see, I'm not, despite all these provocations. Here I am. We're still we're still outside of Ukraine. I, you know, that that's what I would guess he would do. I think from his perspective, you know, his concern with internal survival and, and status, that is plenty good enough. And in fact, probably closer to what Russians want than a shooting war in Ukraine. You know, it's really easy for you to channel Putin for some reason. I don't know. I don't know why. I don't know why. You, why do you do that? Let me ask one question before I go on to Max and the next question. How do you feel, Rosa? Do you feel better from your COVID? I'm feeling a lot better. Thank you for asking, David. I will say that it, the sad thing is that a couple of days ago, I was hit by the notorious COVID loss of sense of taste which since I really, really like eating is very distressing, but I can't really complain because I'm alive and kicking and right here on Deep State Radio. Yes. And many, many of our listeners have no sense of taste either, which <laughs> clearly, <laughs> clearly that is that's a different issue. Max, your former Republicans were colleagues were just invoked there by Rosa. And uh, she said, you know, their their attacks will probably not have much traction because most Americans don't care about Ukraine. Let me pose a different thought, which is they will say this happened because Biden is weak. It echoes what has happened elsewhere. And it has brought us, it had nothing to do with Ukraine. They will frame this as having brought us to a brink of nuclear war with Russia. In other words, that this is not Ukraine. This is the, the, the worst of the bad old demons. Do you think they'll do that? And do you think that'll work? Well, they will absolutely do that. Uh, Whether it will work or not, I have some doubts, but there's no question that they will make the case. I mean, in the Department of Utter Shamelessness, for example, right now, you've had Ted Cruz pushing sanctions on Nord Stream 2 and accusing Biden and the Democrats of being basically Putin lackeys, whereas Ted Cruz had absolutely zero to say about the fact that his hero slash tormentor, Donald Trump, was actually using U.S. aid to Ukraine to blackmail the Ukrainians into helping him politically and, of course, was kowtowing and simpering to Putin at every opportunity he got. That was all fine by Ted Cruz. But now, you know, Republicans have conveniently forgotten the way that Trump himself acted towards the Russians for four years. And basically, anything short of launching World War III on the part of the Biden administration will be dismissed as appeasement, weakness, provocation, et cetera. Again, there's no question they're going to make that case, but I have some doubts as to whether it'll succeed for the reasons that have just been described, that you know most Americans can't place Ukraine on a map. Most Americans are not ready to go to war for Ukraine. They're not going to feel that strongly about it. But I do think, David, you put your finger on the major vulnerability of the Biden administration here, which is not being accused of Munich-style appeasement, it's the prospect that they could face a 1973-style oil shock, and that could 
hurt the economy and drive up inflation. And that, I think, could really be devastating to Democrats who are already uh, in a position where they're almost certainly going to lose control of at least the House and, and possibly the Senate. And that's something, if that actually increases inflation and, and hurts the, the economic recovery, that could have devastating consequences. And I would add that that is part of what Putin is counting on, not just with the United States, but even more so with Europe, because I don't think he's, he really thinks that the U.S. and Europe are going to put serious sanctions on him because are the Europeans going to interrupt shipments of Russian natural gas in the middle of the winter? Is anybody going to want to deal with a spike in oil prices? So I think he basically thinks that these are empty threats. And then, you know, if he goes ahead and is not deterred, we're going to face a very difficult dilemma where I think we have to carry out the threats. Otherwise, the whole basis of the international system crumbles. But there's no question that in doing so, we could pay, and Biden especially could pay a, a heavy short-term political cost. So I want to move on to talk about some of the next moves, the, the, the near-term diplomatic moves and choices that we're going to face. Uh, this is the point in the podcast where we take a break so that we can say goodbye to those of you who are just listening to us for free, and we can move on to the section that is just for our members. We are grateful for our members. And if you're not, one of our members. This is a good reminder that you should be because there's another third of the podcast to come where we're going to talk about interesting things with these very smart folks. And if you're a member, you get to hear that. And if you're not, you don't. So why don't you become a member? I'll leave it at that. We'll take a very brief break. Thanks to those of you who are not members for joining us. Come back again soon. And uh, we'll resume in moments. <laughs> 